Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, a production of the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. Interviews with authors from command professional reading lists because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. Welcome in this episode from the professional reading list of the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. I'm featuring Patrick Lencioni, author of the book titled The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, A Leadership Fable. Thank you, Pat, for sharing your time with me today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be on here. The thought that we're speaking to men and women around the world who are serving our country, I can't think of anything better to do. Looking ahead at this episode, trust is the foundation of teamwork, a team's greatest obstacles, consensus and certainty, and conflict as a time saver. You are considered one of, if not the, pioneer in something called the organizational health movement. You believe organizational health should be the top priority in an organization. In fact, you have a book titled Why Organizational Health Trumps Everything Else in Business. And obviously, people see value in the Five Dysfunctions book because it's sold 6 million copies and been translated into 30 different languages. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's a, that was a blessing. I did not expect that. Now, in 1997, you founded something called The Table Group. What is that? Right. That's our firm. We used to call it a management consulting firm, but now we do a lot of thinking and putting out new ideas and media. But it's really a firm dedicated to making organizations healthier and more effective so they can serve their customers and, and, and be successful but also so that employees will be more fulfilled and dignified at work. But it's about helping leaders make their organizations as healthy and effective as possible. A very noble cause. That has to be extremely fulfilling for you. It is. And, and I will tell you that many people in the, in the military, I, I had a chance to speak at West Point once and, and teach some classes there. And the military has always been on the forefront of this. So the fact that they're interested in, in a writer like me on business issues and a consultant is, is really amazing because so much of what the world has learned about leadership and how to run an organization comes out of the military. So there's a real symbiotic relationship there. That's so funny because many of my friends who have no direct connection to the military, they sort of see it as a very backward organization. Oh, no. they I believe they're a very forward-thinking organization when it comes to leadership. Absolutely. I mean, they're thinking about leadership and, and, and organizational structure and culture and um, – it's, it's quite phenomenal. I, I do think that some people in the military, when they come out, they, they're, they're thinking like, well, what am I going to have to offer? And as I tell them, oh, you're so far ahead of the game. Your biggest challenge is realizing that you have so much to offer and, and getting yourself to realize that is, is the first big step. Because when people come out of the service, what they have that other organizations need to learn is, is extraordinary. It's nice to hear from an expert like yourself that those of us who have served in the military, we do have quite a bit to offer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. When, when I think, look at people that have experience in the military, I think that if you hire them, they're going to have such a leg up on, on discipline and on understanding 
what a mission is and understand how to work together on teams. And that's not an accident. It's because the military has always been very big on studying this. I mean, we, we've, we've sent boxes of books to Afghanistan to soldiers who were reading the five dysfunctions because they thought it applied to them in the field as well, which is a huge honor to us as an organization. Well, that was very nice of you to do, to show your support of the troops in that way. Now, before we dive directly into the meat of the book, do you believe dysfunction is more common than function in most organizations? And why do you see it that way? Sure. And I definitely do. That's not a cynical thing. I mean, we're, in, we're fallible human beings. And when you put a group of fallible people into a room and have them try to do something, it's natural that their, their brokenness and their errors are going to bounce off one another. And so dysfunction is the norm. And that's not to say that it's, that it's not salvageable because it is. But I think the average family has plenty of dysfunction. And the beauty is even great organizations are messy and have to continue working on this. So are most organizations dysfunctional? Yes. Most are not beyond repair and many are even quite effective. There's just a lot of room for improvement if they address the dysfunctions they have. I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Everything has room for improvement. Right. And, and like marriage, you know, I mean, my wife and I have been married for 27 years. And if we stop working on it, we're in trouble. And in an organization, if a team stops working on things, I'm, this company has been around for 22 years that I'm at. And we're learning things this year about one another and about how to work more effectively and how to be better. So it never ends. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Wow. Isn't that amazing? An expert like yourself and even you still learn things all the time. Leadership Tip from the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Trust is the foundation of a true team. Dysfunction number one, absence of trust. You say the concept of trust boils down to vulnerability. If you're afraid to make mistakes in front of your peers, you're probably not truly a team. How might one recognize an absence of trust among coworkers? Yeah. Well, if people aren't saying things to one another genuinely, like, I don't know the answer, I need help, I made a mistake, um, you're better than I am at this, or you have a better idea, I like that, or even I'm sorry. If people aren't being emotionally buck naked with each other readily on a team, then there's probably a lack of trust, because that's what we mean by trust, people willing to be unguarded and human and admit to their strengths and weaknesses and admit when they need help or when a colleague is better than they are at something. If that's not happening on a regular basis, then you've probably got a trust issue. And the very best teams in the world, people are not afraid to be that way with one another. And that's what we mean by vulnerable, the courage to be human and to acknowledge what, uh, what's not perfect about you. What might happen if a leader gets up in front of a staff and puts on a fake display of vulnerability? What might be the impact? It's a great point. It's far worse to fake it because then you destroy people's trust and you let them down than it is to be to be un, to be guarded. Although the key here is to be real and to be human. And it's not about standing up and being um, and crying in front of somebody or being excessively vulnerable. It's about being real. And that's what we teach people is be their real selves. The best places to work and the most effective places are the ones where people show up to work and they're no different than they are there than when they were driving into work or when they are at home. So it's about being human and authentic, not about being fake. And when a leader stands up and says, you know, oh, I feel terrible about something, but they don't, people always figure it out 
and then they lose more trust than they would have had than they would have had anyway. Sounds like they need to apply the same rules for every relationship, whether they're at home or at work, correct? Absolutely, but so many people go to work. Now, some people come from dysfunctional home life too. I mean, like truly dysfunctional, but so many people go to work and they feel like they have to be something different than they were at home. And I think life gets much better when a human being is the same person in both places because they fit the culture and because people accept them for who they are and because people will push them to improve when they go to work, not pretend and be something they're not. I think we should all be our full selves in whatever work environment we're in. And and that's when we're going to get the best out of one another. But being yourself means you're open to criticism and you're open for people trying to improve you as well. Which is a perfect lead in to my next question. Well done, by the way. When people trust, you find things between them such as constructive feedback. For example, that was great, but here's a way that might make it better. Also, people may offer to help others outside their primary area of expertise, taking a risk, getting outside their comfort zones for the benefit of others, which can lead to growth both personally and professionally. And finally, when we trust others, we see more value in them. Trust makes us better, not only as a team, but as individuals as well. How do you see trust as an element in a team? Yeah, I think that the more people, you know, there in Proverbs, it says iron sharpens iron. And I think people know that. And certainly people in the military do. Yet it's too many people in the world, even I'm sure in some places in the military, they, 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 they revert to a pillow fight where people aren't pushing on each other and aren't helping each other get better. And the best teams in the world, whether it's in sports, military, business, anything else, the best teams in the world are the ones that push each other to improve. And it's sometimes a little uncomfortable, but very quickly they start to realize these people have my best interest in mind. And so I need to have theirs. And that's how organizations thrive. When people start holding back or denying that they have anything to learn, that's when things get bad. Yeah, so many of us feel like we need to be guarded at work. Very interesting take on your part. Now, if we recognize we're in a culture at work where trust is not what it could be, what are some ways you recommend to overcome this absence of trust? Well, the first thing is you just have to get used to being vulnerable, and you can start in baby steps, if you will. One of the exercises we use with our teams is we have them take 15 minutes as a team. It doesn't take long at all. And they go around the table and everybody says, here's where I grew up. Here's how many kids were in my family and where I fell in that order. And here's the most interesting or difficult challenge of my childhood, not my inner childhood, just being a kid. And so in 15 minutes, people hear things from one another and we say, how many people learned something new that they didn't know? And every hand goes up. And suddenly people are like, wow, that didn't seem that hard, but We actually understand each other a little bit better. We respect each other more. We've kind of leveled the playing field. Then we go on and we do some sort of tool like the Myers-Briggs or DISC. There's a bunch of tools out there so that people can, in a safe way, acknowledge their styles and acknowledge to their team that they have strengths and weaknesses and people can actually be upfront about that. So in a matter of, an, of two hours, we can get people talking about things and calling out one another's strengths and weaknesses in a way that feels safe. And literally, they're having conversations that they've never had before because they thought it would be judgmental or uncomfortable. Myers-Briggs is a wonderful self-discovery tool. If you've never heard of it before, it helps define your personality, helps you discover why you make the decisions that you do. I highly recommend looking into it if you haven't yet. Now, Pat, do you know what your Myers-Briggs type is off the top of your head? Yeah, I'm an ENFP. 
And what does that say about you? That means that I, the the E means I'm an extrovert and I get energy from other people. So I like to think out loud and go into a room and brainstorm. My wife, however, is an introvert. She prefers to process on her own. They're both totally valid. But if you don't know that, you can get annoyed. I'm an N. The N means I'm intuitive, which I like to think in an abstract way. And I look at the big picture and data isn't so important to me as it is kind of looking for patterns. So I'm an abstract big picture thinker. The opposite of that would be an S, somebody who prefers things that are concrete and data oriented, right? And very, and very physical. The next one is I'm an F, which means I'm a feeler. I tend to think about things from a human standpoint, and I'm pretty sensitive to the needs of others. That's compared to a thinker, a T, who is a lot more, I guess they would be objective rather than subjective and logical rather than emotional. Now, I still got good grades in math, but Ultimately, I approach most things from a human standpoint, not from a more of a concrete objective standpoint. Both are totally valid, but that's just how God wired me. I had to go through some old college papers of mine, and I rediscovered that I am an ESTJ. Aha. Which loosely defined means I'm a big jerk. (laughs) No. The ESTJ is like the the classical like job manager. They're the supervisor. And truthfully, there, there's a lot of ESTJ in the military because there has to be. Leadership tip from the five dysfunctions of a team. Trying to make everyone happy ensures no one is happy. So many of us are afraid of differences, which brings us to dysfunction number two, fear of conflict. You define conflict as the healthy addressing of differences, seeking out a healthy resolution. On the other side, you call tension an unhealthy ignoring of differences. Explain what you mean. Yeah, conflict is good because it's how we make better decisions. We we push on each other and we, we disagree around ideas. And when people don't disagree around ideas, two things happen. One, they make bad decisions. Obviously, people in the military, especially people in the field, know that if you're not having regular disagreement around a decision you have to make, you're going you're gonna to lose out on the best ideas. Now, when you go into implementation, sometimes that's not the right time for that. But even then, most people will say in the field, you give each other real-time feedback and you learn from things. So bad decisions and bad execution comes about when we don't have good conflict. The other thing is when we don't have good conflict, it ferments into the wrong kind of conflict, which is interpersonal, destructive conflict. So when people don't talk to each other honestly, they leave the room and they start talking about each other outside of the meeting in the hallway or in the parking lot. And that is bad. It's very unhealthy, definitely. You talk about artificial harmony. Please define artificial harmony and what are the consequences of artificial harmony? Artificial harmony is when people pretend that they're they're getting along, they nod and smile at each other, but it's only because they're not being honest. And so everything looks nice and comfortable from the outside, but they're not having true discussion. And as a result of that, they're not building trust and they're not going to learn to respect each other. This is what happens in organizations where people feel like they're supposed to be nice and that that's more important than the right answer. And by the way, being nice to one another is not the same as being kind to one another. If you're really kind and you care about somebody, disagreeing with them is a service. And if you're being nice just because you want to protect yourself from an uncomfortable conversation, there's nothing really kind about that. 
Very, very interesting. I know many of us have been in situations where we've ignored things. Taking the higher ground, as it's sometimes called, you know, just trying to be nice. But perhaps that's not the case at all. Leadership Tip from the five dysfunctions of a team. Accountability requires conflict. Consensus. We all want to get along with others. And when we have an idea or a proposal, we feel getting everyone on board is important to success. This brings us to dysfunction number three, lack of commitment. Everyone must agree in order for everyone to be committed to a goal, correct? Yes, well, they must not necessarily agree. They must commit to doing the same thing. This is such a concept that came out of the military. Intel, the computer chip manufacturer, they had a CEO years ago named Andy Grove, and he had a a philosophy that said, disagree and commit. We will go into a room to make a decision. Everyone will be required to share their, their opinions. We will push on each other, and at the end, if there's no natural consensus which consensus isn't is a four letter word to me if it comes about naturally that's great but even though we're not necessarily going to going to agree we will commit to a decision and and we will leave that room on the same page and i think it was patton who once said you know a a good plan violently executed is better than a better plan that people don't really rally around something to that effect and the problem is we have to first weigh in and have conflict And then at the end of that discussion, the leader has to break the tie and make the call. And then we will leave and say, we are all completely behind this decision. That's far more important than everybody agreeing. And as long as there's no unethical or immoral decision that's being made, it's just a matter of, yeah, I probably would have done it differently. 99% of people will support a decision they disagreed with because they knew that their input was heard and that they were honored and they can support something even if it's not what they agreed, uh, what they would have done themselves. The problem is if we don't have conflict, people won't buy into and commit to that decision because they don't feel like they were ever heard. As long as they feel they had a voice, sure. Let me say one more thing about that if I could. And that is people think that the military is a place where you go and people just tell you what to do and you just obey. The fact of the matter is I think the military, now there are certain times when that has to be the case. But I've seen more examples of people in the military saying, speak up and weigh in on something, and then let's all execute together. And that's whether it's in the field or in something else. I think the military is far better at soliciting the input of of the right people early in the process so that people buy in and get something done. And there's a a false idea that everything in the military is just do it my way or that's the highway. Because the best decisions are not made when by one person. They're, They're best made when people weigh in. I completely agree. And I've talked to a number of people over the years. And, you know, I've explained for me the military was one of my best choices. You know, I had reached a point in my life where I needed to make a drastic change and how it might be something that they could look into. Right. And a very common response is, I don't want to get yelled at all day long. (laughs) You know, and I have to explain to him, you know, that's not how it really is. Yeah, I mean, basic training. Okay, sure. But even that's changed a great deal if everything I've heard is true. 
Yeah, you know, I, I I played high school football. I was never in the military. Both of my parents were, though. There is a time and place to be yelled at, and there's a time and place to, to actually do things that you don't want to just because someone told you to, because life has that. But the military takes you through basic training, but then they don't say, now this is what it's going to be for the rest of your life. Then you get to be in, in an environment where you earn the right to have more and more input. And I find that people that are in all branches of the military, depending on the situation, because certain situations call for a more you know singular approach, they learn how to operate as a team and to, to weigh in better than most people on the outside. They just don't realize that. And so a lot of those stereotypes are just so wrong. And I think the earlier that people that are in the service realize that, the more they can enjoy being in the service and the more that they're going to add value when they come out as well. Agreed. Now, you say great teams make clear and timely decisions. And we all know someone or even worked for someone who can never seem to make a decision. They want more information. They're just, they're just not sure they're ready to move forward. But there comes a point where you just have to. How do you see this need for certainty? Yeah, too many leaders want to have the perfect decision made. They want more data. They want to make sure there's no risk. And the fact of the matter is that there's never going to be that case. The best companies in the world, um, the best leaders in the world are comfortable with a certain degree of ambiguity because if you wait until you, you your, your certainty level is super high, you're going to make decisions that are far too late. And the best organizations know that they have to have enough information to feel some confidence, but they have to realize they can make a decision and then they can even change it later when they get more data. So being decisive and being clear, even without perfect information, is far more important than waiting around till you can have high levels of what you think is perfection because that's never obtainable. Well, I, I think most people would rather have some decision rather than no decision. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And again, you know, this came out of the military. A decision is better than no decision. And you know why? Because you learn from a decision and you can an adjust it. Whereas if you wait and continue to do more analysis, you don't actually learn from that. In the book, you say communication is vital to clear goals, and clear goals can overcome a lack of commitment by people who work with you. Now, everyone may not have agreed with a decision, as we discussed earlier, but they understand it, and they know the direction that we're all going. How might one handle any lingering disagreements in this type of situation? This is where a leader has to say, listen, we talked about this. We were very clear about it. We all agreed that this is the direction we're moving. This is no longer the time to be questioning that. Now, if, if more data has come up or you have a perspective that you weren't able to share, then, hey, I welcome that. But there comes a time when you say that is over. It's now about executing and we have to move forward. And that's what comes down to leadership. And one of the things about leaders is this. If a leader isn't slightly unreasonable at times, they're probably not leading. If a leader wants to be reasonable all the time and have people always comfortable with every decision they make, they're never going to make the difficult decisions. And so, again, democracy is a great way to run a company. It's a terrible way to run a business. And it's a terrible way to run a military as well. Leadership Tip from the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Avoiding conflict stifles productivity. Holding people accountable is not something most of us enjoy. Dysfunction number four, 
avoidance of accountability. Pointing out others' mistakes or lack of acceptable effort is an uncomfortable thing to do. However, in your opinion, the long-term effect of not holding people accountable is worse. How is this possible? Well, here's the thing. And this is the this is the area of the biggest problem. We have an online team assessment that people fill out and then they'll get back the results, which is the triangle, like my model, which says green, yellow, or red, depending on which of the dysfunctions is their biggest probable issue. This one, accountability, is the lowest scoring area. Um, it's the one where people get red more than any of the others. And that is this. People don't like to turn to one of their peers and say, listen, you're not doing it well enough or you need to improve. And people say, well, why should a peer do that? Shouldn't that be the leader's role? The fact of the matter is peer accountability is by far the best kind of accountability that there is. Turning to somebody in your platoon or turning to somebody in your office and saying, hey, I think you need to do this better or you're not doing what we agreed to is much better than going to the leader and telling them and making them perform that accountability. Because what that does is introduces politics and people are like, well, who ratted me out and why did you do that? It's so much better when somebody turns to somebody else and says, hey, I think this is something you're going to have to get better on. Now, the only reason that that makes sense or the only way that that works is if everybody knows that the leader will be the primary or the ultimate source of accountability. See, if the leader is going to do it anyway, if your platoon leader is going to do it, you, you might as well help out your buddy and say, hey, you, you need to get better at this. You're going to get called on it. So I might as well tell you. But if the leader doesn't do it, if the leader is not willing to hold people accountable, and even in the military, there's wussy leaders that don't like to do that, then people are not going to do it to one another. And I know this because I am very reluctant to hold people accountable. I've worked on it in my career, and I think I've gotten a lot better. But I want to be a nice guy. And so I think, well, I don't want to hold people accountable. Well, you know what that means? The people that work for me, they're not going to hold each other accountable. Why should they do my dirty work? So my job as a leader is to make sure that everybody knows that I will enter the danger and hold them accountable. And as a result of that, they might as well do it for one another. And then they start to do it and things run really smoothly. And boy, all you have to do is ask someone in the military or for that matter, in the emergency room at a hospital or, or police or firefighters. On, on the scene of a crime or a fire, you better love your, your colleague enough to tell him or her what they need to do to get better. Because if you don't, you're letting them down. And I like to use that word love. Because if you love somebody, you will enter the danger and tell them what they need to hear. I know if I don't do that to my kids, I can't say I love them. And here in my office, if I don't tell people that, that are doing something wrong or that need to improve, if I don't confront them about that, I'm doing them no favors. And, and this is the problem. We think I'm being nice to somebody by holding back my opinion. You're not. It's actually an act of selfishness and even at times an act of cruelty. You, boy, and imagine if you're doing something that's life-threatening and somebody's not doing it well. And you just let them go. Yeah. Well, it's the same in a bank or a hospital or a, or a software company as it ought to be in the field. And that is, I owe it to them to tell them because they're going to ultimately suffer if they don't improve. Now, you say conflict is a time saver, and that seems backwards to me. How is it possible that conflict is a time saver? I mean, my wife and I, like we can cycle through a difficult conversation in five minutes. Probably when we got married, it took us a couple hours or a day, but we can actually disagree passionately. But because we trust each other and we know what we're trying to do is make a better decision for our family or for our kids, we can cycle through that very quickly and figure things out. The most innovative people in the world know how to have conflict quickly to produce a better result. 
Now, this is all predicated on them trusting each other. But when people are afraid to have conflict, they don't get to the right decision very quickly, if ever. And when you learn that I can say something and even risk pissing off, if I can say that, my colleague who knows me and cares about me, we can actually do that well, apologize to one another and make a decision in 20 minutes that another group of people might have taken days and weeks to do because they just couldn't enter the danger and get through it. Leadership tip from the five dysfunctions of a team. Teams perform better than individuals. Dysfunction number five, inattention to results. A team of lesser talented individuals working together as a team will often beat a team of more talented people performing as individuals. You define this as collective success. And collective success is sacrificed when individuals are more focused on their own personal goals at the expense of the team. For example, a basketball player who is more interested in their own point totals may repeatedly take poor shots rather than pass the ball to a teammate who has a better shot. What's your take on collective success? Yeah, you know, this happens in sports all the time. I mean, the best example in the in the NFL is the is the New England Patriots. Go back and look at the team, the talent on their team. They do not win because of talent. I mean, there's other teams that have more talent, and yet they win because they have a culture that taps into that talent because people say, and they, they have a sign outside their locker room when you, when you come in the door and you leave, and it basically says, the team is more important than you as an individual, and you have to understand that. And when you have a group of people that believe that, they're going to outperform a more talented group that doesn't believe that. And, you know, I will go right back again and talk about the military. Everybody assumes that the United States is a strong military because we have better equipment and technology, and we do. And that's fantastic. I was actually at Oshkosh, a company in Wisconsin. I got to ride around in the new um, joint light tactical vehicle that they make. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is amazing. And I'm so glad that my country has great equipment and, and for people out in the field. But the truth of the matter is it's the culture of our military that has to always win the day. And that is we are more committed and we have to be committed to one another. And that's why when people do things that break down that level of commitment or that they, they bring politics or, or things into the mix that don't serve us, it's such a dangerous thing that we have to guard against. The culture of an organization is really what wins the day. You want to have the best strategies. You want to have the best equipment. You want to have the best technology. But ultimately, you have to have the best culture. And that is a culture where it says, I will sacrifice for the greater good, even if it doesn't benefit me. Another concept you address is inattention to results. Michelangelo, the great Italian artist, not the Ninja Turtle, just to be clear, <laughs> is credited with saying the greatest danger is not setting goals too high and not reaching them. It's setting goals too low and achieving them. How does this apply to inattention to results? Yeah, when people say, well, we're going to be political and we're dysfunctional, we don't trust each other and we're not going to have conflict, we are basically saying that it doesn't really matter that we maximize our success and get the most out of what we have here. And that's just bad stewardship. When we are given an opportunity to do something, we have to do the very best. And that cannot happen if we are accepting all of those other limitations. And, and, and I think that's one of the greatest disservices you can do to anyone is the poverty of low expectations. 
And that's why it's great to go to the, to, and you know, I was watching a show about prison the other day and it was these kids that youth, young kids who got put into like a boot camp at prison and they were challenging them to be better than they thought they could be. And what a gift that is. And when people complain about boot camp, talk to anybody that went to boot camp and they will say that miserable experience was the best thing that could have happened in their lives because they grew more than they would have otherwise. And when people say you should never yell at anybody or you should never do anything that's disrespectful, if you're doing it in a context of love and you're really trying to make them better, it's a gift. And that's why I don't like it when people that have never been in the military or understand the military try to criticize the way the military does things because they don't understand how they change lives and protect our country. If we find our team has started to become distracted, what are some ways to help a team get back to or even stay focused? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is they, they got to go through this model and they say, so do we know what our goals are? And if they say no, it's like, okay, so then we, we can't be holding each other accountable because we don't know what those are. And, and if we ha- we're not holding each other accountable, we have to go back to the beginning and say, if we trust each other, we need to go back and have conflict around what it is we're trying to accomplish. And so maybe they never really entered the danger and had that conversation like, which hill are we going to take here? Or what, what program are we trying to launch? Or what objective are we trying to achieve? And if they haven't had that conversation, they have to go back and have that. Um, because, because just showing up to work and doing what you think you're supposed to do on a daily basis without having a common goal is not going to work. Everybody who comes to work and they want to know what is it that we're working toward collectively. So we got to go back and sit down in that room and say, let's clarify what it is we think success looks like and make sure everybody knows about it. Without a a common, clear set of goals or objectives, no team is going to be able to rally and work together. Patrick Lencioni, author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a leadership fable from the professional reading list of the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Again, 11 books packed with similar leadership wisdom, not to mention the leadership fable contained in the Five Dysfunctions book, where you tell the story of a group of people overcoming challenges as a way to drive home the lessons contained in the five dysfunctions. And we didn't even touch upon that today. A very enjoyable part of the book, by the way, well worth the price of admission. Well, thank you. You know, when I sat down to write my first book, I decided I would make it fiction and I would keep it short because people like to learn, but they like to learn through story. And I have found so many people that said, gee, I don't really pick up business books, but I read yours because I find them to be entertaining and I learn better that way. And then the lesson, I condensed the lesson in the back of the book. So it seems to be working. And um, what I try not to do is make things so complex and to make myself look smarter than I am, because then people don't know how to actually apply it. Well, I found it to be a very easy read and listen. I prefer audiobooks these days, but I read it a few years ago and listened to it again when I was preparing for this podcast, and both times it was very easy to get through, which is a testament to your writing skills. Well, very good. Well, I am, a, I am just um, so grateful and humbled by the fact that people in our armed services might be using this because we, everybody says how much they appreciate it, but we don't know most of the people in the service. We know a few in our own lives, but there are people sitting on ships and in bases and, and sitting at home because their loved ones are gone that are listening to this right now. And they truly are appreciated and honored. And if, they're, if they find any of the things I do to be helpful, then I feel like a very blessed and lucky man. Thank you again for sharing your time with me, Pat. Well, George, thank you so much. Anything we can do for you, let us know. And thank you for listening to this edition of The Leadership List, 
a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember, leaders never stop learning. Until next time. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Beeson, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.